Welcome to the Cork Church Podcast. We are so glad that you're joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and encourages you in the things of the Lord. Enjoy the message. Thank you, Father. Lord, as we come around your word this morning, we do bless you. We do thank you. We honor you, Lord, for the, kind, the many kindnesses that you have given to us all. Lord, lovely John, the beloved, he, he writes, Lord, grace upon grace, Lord. Grace upon grace, Father, Lord. And uh, we, we just thank you, Lord. You have never changed, Lord. No matter how moody we are, Lord, or changeable we are, you're the never-changing God, the same yesterday and today and forever. And that means your love hasn't changed. And the heart that sent you to the cross of Calvary hasn't changed. And God the Father, there's no change in you. You still love the world. And we love you t- today. It's our honor to worship you and to be called Christians. And bless this word, may it honor Christ. May it bring glory to your name, Heavenly Father. And may it bless every man, woman, boy and girl in Jesus' precious name. Amen. About two, every year I, I do a series on the New Covenant. I think last year I, did, I, think, I think I did four parts. They're all there if you want to look at them again. And this year I did, uh, started two months ago. I did a part one and part two. And it's on our YouTube channel. It's also on our Facebook page. So if you want, you know, you want some listening some evening to grow in truth, you can go back and catch those part one and part two. And I also did a New Covenant thought on a Wednesday I called A New Covenant Thought. So the three of them are current for this year. And if you, know, if you want to kind of go back and see what that is, that's very important for you. If you want to get a, a balanced and strong understanding of, of, of what the gospel is, you have to understand the covenant, the new covenant or the New Testament correctly. A wrong understanding of that will, uh, will have you as a Christian very susceptible to your moods and uh, very susceptible to the forces around you. And even bring a lot of condemnation and guilt into your life unnecessarily. So many of us live in, in, in places of darkness in our, in our lives, and they're actually strongholds. You know, we, we build up these strongholds as people. A stronghold is a defensive position. You've heard me say a stronghold is a, it's not an attacking position. It's a, a position that we, we say, this is the truth, and I'm defending that at all costs. Whatever that truth is, it could be something that you believe about yourself, that's not true, but you're defending it to be true. That's a stronghold, you know. It could be an error of doctrine that you're defending and, and, and you're defending strongly, uh, but it's a stronghold. It, it could be something that someone said about you, uh, uh, you know, that you feel has defined you or other people have defined you and it's, you, you well, it must be true. My, my parent, my dad and my mom said I was thick, I, was, I never had any brains, so I must be stupid and you go around all your life and it's not true. But you end up, end up, ends up being a stronghold in your thinking. And they, those strongholds have to be pulled down. They have to be torn down through the word of God. The entrance of thy word brings life and light. And so that, that's why we as Christians, we are in a constant state of reformation. That means we're constantly reforming, getting our lives to point straight towards Christ all the time. And what he says about us is the actual truth. It's kind of simple when you think about it. The best appraisal of your life is not done by you, it's done by him. 
It's, it's, that's a wonderful thing because when he declares you righteous and a son or a daughter, and he brings you into his body, the church, then by virtue of his work in your life, that is your identity. That is who you are. That's amazing, isn't it? I want to think about that just for a few short moments because many are the plans of a man's mind, but it's the Lord orders his steps. And sometimes you just need to get in step with what God is already doing and said in your life. Amen? And that will lead you into great places of peace, tranquility, happiness, fulfillment. Uh, you know, what can man do to you? What can he say about you when the Almighty himself stands as your defender? When God himself has declared you righteous, you don't need to be going around justifying yourself anymore to other people. Amen? Or to even yourself, you simply start to enjoy what God has said about you. You begin to embrace that. And funny enough, as you, that's living by faith, by the way. Living by faith, faith is simply believing God. Let's not get convoluted about faith. Faith is believing God. So when you start to believe what God says about you since you put your faith in his Christ, that's growing in faith. And as you begin to stay in that place, God sends the supernatural outworking of his Holy Spirit into your life, and you begin to see not just growth in your Christian journey, but you also begin to see victory in your Christian life. That's the way that God has determined it to be. The just shall live by faith. By grace are ye saved through faith. The grace is the free gift of God and through faith in the free gift of God, which is Jesus Christ, you're saved. But then the battle is to believe what God has done in your life now and to stand in that and say, well, I don't feel very worthy as a son or a daughter. I don't feel very worthy of the goodness of God today, so therefore I mustn't be. No, whether I feel worthy or not, or whether I was flattering to my testimony or not, I would still stay in what God has said about me. And it's only from that place will God reward that faith with victory. It's only from that place, friends, the supernatural, the Paul, the apostle says, the excellency of the power is of God and not of us. God causes the light to shine out of darkness into our lives. And I want to bring you to a, a closing on the new covenant. And again, as I say, for those who may not have too much exposure, or maybe if you can't remember some of the teaching, go back, listen to, listen to part one, part two, listen to it in order, take if you... Um, nights and listen to that. Make some notes for your Christian experience because it is very, very important. There's no reason for you, uh, no matter what your education is, no matter whether you're, you feel I'm not a big Bible head, I, I don't, I'm, I'm just in the door. You know, you could just say to me, I'm just in the door, I don't know much. I want to tell you, you don't need to know a lot. You just need to know Him. Amen. And He will lead you into all truth. So uh, you can say, well, I don't have much education. Well, get in line behind your pastor more than likely. Remember I told you Mrs. Ruddle's class, three of us uh, in English, and it wasn't because of our brilliance, amen, it was because we were the worst. <laughs> and so God can use you. And so what I'm trying to say is that you can all have a great, great sense of confidence to be able to stand on the truth of God's word and have a confidence, a confidence to negotiate your life in victory rather than in perpetual fear or defeat. And I believe this is what the Lord would have for all of us. Of course, you know, we are such, our old natures are so messed up, they, it does get in the way. Complications get in the way, but it's not because it's complicated, you know. So there's a simplistic path. And, you know, Paul talks about moving away from the simplicity of the gospel. That's what the devil is going to try to get you to do. He's going to try to make it more complicated than what it actually is. 
and, it's going to, and your own flesh is going to try to make it more complicated, when in actual fact, it's, it's quite, quite simple. So, um, number three on the New Covenant this morning, turn in your Bible to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 9, and reading from verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now what happened as Jesus sat at the, tax, at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the disciples saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." And God bless the reading. So we're talking about the new covenant. I'm going to come back. This is our bedrock. This is our final thought um, for this year. We'll do new covenant again next year. But uh, so to understand again, we have your Bible is made up uh, 66 books, 48 and, uh, and 27. And so you have your Old Testament, which is really the chronological history of man. It's put in there, the history of man, the history of God's plan of salvation, uh, our fallen uh, forefather, our original father, Adam, when he was made in the image of God and put into a garden, uh, embraced consciousness, was given basic instruction, but succumbed to a notion that knowledge was actually a better way of making his way in life than a tree of life, which represented Christ and the pattern of God for him and embarked upon a, a life of knowledge and pursuit of knowledge. And so that that filled the human species with a sense that we can bring ourselves beyond where God had ordered us to be, where God had created us to be. God created us to be able to stand in His presence and enjoy Him, not to be independent of God. The, the issue with the world today is that, that when you try to assert independence of God, we'll see how far that's going to get you. It's not going to get you very far. You're, you're, you're going to break down, not just mentally and emotionally and spiritually, you're going to break down physically. And woe to the man that's on his own in that time because you're independent. Uh, I don't need anybody. I'm, 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 my, I'm the oak. I'm, I'm standing in the field on my own. You're not built that way. You're built for social interaction. But most of all, you're built for heavenly interaction. And without that in your life, you are adrift on this, in this massive ocean uh, that is susceptible. And, and the Bible says you're double-minded because you're unstable. You just don't know your way forward or backwards, and you're thrown and tossed by every wind that comes your direction. And Adam brought that in, and so God's plan of salvation was one of an epic thing that he had to really, uh, you know, he promised back in the garden that he would produce a Savior. We know that from Genesis 3.15, that the Savior would be a seed of a woman that would come into the world 
and he would be the Savior, which is Christ our Lord. That was known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel preached. God preached it. God preached the gospel message right in the Garden of Eden after man had fallen. God's goodness, friends. We all know that the only way for anyone to be saved is to believe God. Had Adam and Eve and all those who proceeded after him simply believed that message, it would also be credited to them as righteousness as it was for Abraham all those years later. And so God began his, his, his interaction with men on the basis of covenants. Covenants is the speak of the Bible. In the Old Testament, in the book uh, Genesis, we have the Adamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Adam. Adam broke it. The Noahic covenant, which is a covenant of grace. The Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of the seed. The Mosaic covenant, which is the law by which men and women would interact with the Holy God on the basis of a covenant, a legal contract, that they would, they would live by laws, and keep them perfectly, and then God would be their God and would justify them and would, would fight their enemies. And there was a lot of great um, benefits from the Mosaic Covenant. If only they could but keep it, it would be phenomenal. Israel would be tiny Israel, the size of Munster. A lot of people struggle when I say that, and they think Israel is this monstro monstrosity of a country. Israel today is the size of Munster, 7.8 million people surrounded by 3 million hostels. Uh, you know, with, you know if they, imagine if they could have kept covenant with God. It didn't matter if there was 10 billion hostiles around them. You know, when you can keep covenant, God said, I would fight your enemy. Whew. <laughs> but the problem is they couldn't keep covenant. They couldn't keep 10 basic commandments. And so man uh, is the covenant breaker. We had the Levitical covenant with the priest, the Davidic covenant with David. The, and then, of course, where we're dealing with the last two teachings, the new covenant. All this was pushing forward to an ultimate time when, when God felt the time was right. The Bible says in the fullness of time, Christ was revealed. And we understand now, looking back, the fullness means that God had to show mankind. And it took generations because we are very stubborn. We are very willful. We all think that we're better than the ones that came before us. You know, the Z think they're better than the, 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 what's the, the millennials. The millennials think they're better than the... Uh, what, what were they called? The boomers, yeah. The boomers think they were better than the, the, the guys that came out of the trees, whatever that might be. And so every generation just thinks they're a little bit better and higher and stronger. And of course, we all, if we were to look into our own spirits, we would all think they were a little bit better than our parents. We're going to be a bit fairer in how we decide how we deal with our children. We're going to be a little bit balanced and, then until children come along and that, that notion is quite quickly shattered. And then we're running back to mom and dad for help because they actually know a lot more than us. But the point is that even religiously, uh, God had to show that to the children of Israel. So he elects the people, the children of Israel, gives them a homeland, out of, which is the land of Israel. Out of that homeland, the Savior of the world was, it came forth, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that journey of the law, you know, the one thing that Adam filled our human species with, with is with self-belief, and that had to be dealt with. Self-belief is a very powerful thing. Self-belief has utility. Self-belief has ability. You can get, a, you can get quite far in self-belief. You can become a great athlete in believing in self, and you can do better, and you can do more. But I want to tell you, no matter who they are, even the Bible says, even the young men will utterly faint. There comes a time when you can't jump up into heaven, amen. You might be able to jump six foot 11, and that's pretty high by international standards, but you ain't jumping into heaven. Nimrod, Nimrod of course, tried that with his great mechanic, his great effort of uh, architecture when he tried to build uh, right up into heaven, friends. And man has always tried to extend his influence into the heavens through technology, through knowledge. Man has always tried to expound himself through knowledge. 
Man is always trying to better himself through knowledge. See the tree of knowledge? That sense, that, that's what we got, filled, we got filled with that. We got filled with self-belief. The minute Adam took that tree, man, he filled us all with this, I can do. I can make it there. I can be a better me. I can, I can ascend the hill of the Lord. You know, and that is a horrendously powerful place that all humanity has to deal with. The fact that they think that we can fix it. And of course, God had to knock that out of us with the law. The law of Moses was given. Ten laws, ten law, uh, that if you kept them perfectly, then God would, vi- would be with them. But of course, they couldn't keep it. And then the next generation thought, well, we'll get it a little bit better. They, they kind of backed it and they, they added all these sub-laws and subtexts to, um, to, to try to box in the human nature. And of course, none of that was helpful. None of, all it did was just compound the misery for the Jewish people to show them that in the, in the eyes of a holy God, by the works of the law shall no man be justified. So that means even good religious works. You cannot get to heaven one day and stand before the God of glory and say, I am here today because I kept your laws and I deserve to be here. I am here today, Lord, because I'm so much better than other people at court church or any other church because I am the most disciplined human being that has ever come into this planet. I am the one that has cracked the code. I am the one that has excelled beyond all my peers. Can you hear how many eyes there is there? Can you hear the, how, the, how, how a man is boasting in himself? You can, I want to tell you, friends, that man will not stand before holy God. And actually, that man will be cast down on his knees because there's only one who can stand in the presence of a holy God who has exceeded and excelled and come through every temptation, has lived a life that was flawless and perfect and obedient even unto death. He's the one that ever stands and ever lives to make intercession for us. There's only one name the Bible says that salvation is in. There's no other name under heaven given to men. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, the Bible says. There's no big people in this world, including pastors. I happen to be a little bit bigger than Pastor Steve. That's just on the metric size of it. But there ain't nobody big here. Amen. We all know that the fallen nature of Adam rises his head within our veins all the time. But this incredible champion comes true who says, God the Father, I will become the second Adam and I will do covenant with you. I will make a covenant as the God man. And, it's, you know, and at nausea for some of you, you're going to hear this time and time again at Cork Church. Because when you don't understand the new covenant, your understanding of Christianity is that you somehow go into a covenant with God and that somehow you've got legal obligations that you must fulfill and God has legal obligations that he will fulfill and then the two of you live happily ever after. Well, no, that's not what the new covenant is. If you are like that, then you're no different than the old covenant because you're no better than your forefathers. You will not be able to keep your promises. You will not be able to keep the covenant of God. And that means when you break the covenant, the covenant is broken. And when blood covenants were, 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 were struck and you broke a blood covenant, then it was a blood sacrifice. In other words, death had to be, blood had to be shed. And of course, all this was a drama played out in the Old Testament because man had to, be, had to understand the severity of sin, the holiness of God, and that you cannot come into the presence of a holy God. God lays down certain attributes and teachings and reveals certain things about who he is. 
you know, he's all powerful, he's everywhere, he's, he's outside of time, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's p- completely pure and perfect, and no sin will enter into his presence. And he teaches us these things about who he is. But yet, it is God's love for us that in his very heart, that before he created us and knew that man in his sovereignty, he knew where man would go, but he also knew he had a plan. And that plan was his only begotten son that would become part of the human race and begin to. So the old covenants were all about you doing something, whether it was a Adamic covenant where Adam had to go in and name the animals and look after the place and simply take from the tree of life and embrace that reality and grow in his understanding of who God was because, as I said, Adam all of a sudden came into existence. And when you come into existence, you have to start... You know, you're not just there with everything. It's not that he got this massive download into his brain and all of a sudden he goes, oh, and so you're a God. Or, you know, oh, I now, I now know how it all works. It was the joy of walking a journey with his creator. You know, sometimes there would be a benefit in having children that were immediately fully grown and mature. You know, I'm sure there's an appeal to that for some of us parents. But one of the great joys of being a parent, isn't it, is to see your child and to enjoy the stages of life and learn to walk in that journey. And that's why God created Adam. Adam, Adam was childlike in many ways, yet he was a man. And, and the romancing the journey with God must have been something that was so delightful in the heart of God that he would come on the cool of the day to walk with Adam and talk with Adam. Can you imagine God who, spe- who, who exists outside of space and time that doesn't, is not constituted of matter, he's a spirit, would take shape and form and yet in his glory would come and walk with Adam. I just think it's a, it, it just shows you something it's so hard to even visualize it, but it does display something of the heart of God, doesn't it? It does give you something, you know, because we are dealing with someone that is outside of our ability, with, unless he makes himself small enough for us, for us to determine and understand, we could never understand his vastness. And yet he does this and he creates and, and wants to walk with man and he loves men. He loves the sons and daughters of Adam. The fallen ones, because we've all fallen short, the Bible says, of the glory of God. But of course, man is not ready, just like they're not ready today. This is a great message. Anyone sitting here today, if you're not a Christian, you'd have to say on point for point, that's a nice thought. It is, whether it's true or not, you may say it's a nice thought. But you know what? It's more than a nice thought. It is the truth. It's what God feels towards you. My plans towards you, says the Lord. Our plans are good. Not an evil to bring you to a good end, but you'll say right immediately, well, I'm not too sure about that. I have my own plans. It's good for somebody else, but I want to do my own thing. And I want to tell you, friends, whoever you are listening online or here this morning, just have a look at history. See where that gets you. It's going to get you nowhere. It's going to get you up. The Bible says, as I said, Isaiah says, even the young men, it's women too, using a generic term, would utterly faint. It's going to get you nowhere quick. It's just going to get you into misery. It's going to get you depressed. It's going to, because outside of Christ, outside of a relationship with God, you are adrift, as I said at the start, in this massive ocean, susceptible to every storm and to the terrors of that deep underneath you. But Christ has come. And of course, so every, every generation, you know, they, they, were, they were exposed to the law. And the law eventually, the law of Moses, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was really what was trying to show man his inability by his own power to get into the presence of a holy God. And so this is 
Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15 actually that the law was uh, 25. Uh, the law was a schoolmaster. It, it was to teach you something about yourself. You know, when you, when you metric your life against the perfect law of God, you begin to see how you fall short, how you have no ability to actually, you think you can keep the commandments. You might keep them for a week. You might keep them for two weeks, but you, you break it. Imperfection has come in. Something has driven a horse and cart into that covenant and it's broken. And so, you know, man comes to a place where eventually you have to say to yourself, this is impossible and it is impossible. And so the Jews now getting right up here to this ch chapter this morning, this, this new covenant, it's not going to be easily received, particularly among the Jewish people who had, you know, had a 4,000 years, I mean, two and a half thousand years of the law at this stage given to them. And they, they, they worked very, very hard for this. They, they, they were delighted to go into this, be the covenant people and to go into this, this, this covenant of obligation with God. And, you know, and so they worked out their religion and they refined it and they kept their oral tradition very tight and their written traditions written down. And, you know, they had a, they had a lot riding on this. And so they, they had the right God, they had the right prophets. But, you know, there was something really began to become embedded in them because the more they got into their religion, the more proud they became. You know, they, you know their religion became a nationalistic sort of spirit, a self-righteous um, and a boasting above the other nations, so much so that they called the Gentile the Goem, which was uh, the uh, Goem dog. Goem was a dog. So you and I were just the dogs because they looked at us as people that had a type of understanding of God, but we, we, we cast it off to, like the dog and we became little different than the animal. And they saw themselves, the religious Jews saw themselves on that level, you know, that they were higher than everybody else. And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of pride in, in that. You know, it's kind of funny, really, because it's not just Judaism. I came out of Catholicism, and those who were very, very good at, at those disciplines rose above their peers, you know, and, they, you're, and you just weren't spiritual, and you weren't at the races. And, and when you looked at them, they were very spiritually proud people. It's full of pride, you know, and um, no, no real brokenness, just pride because they can do it. And so Jesus here, he's, he's, uh, this is the most, this is a wonderful scripture, actually, because He's doing a teaching here that, is, that many people have read the scripture and, and, and they find all ways of trying to interpret this, but it's, to me it's very, very simple scripture. He's invited to a tax collector's house, Matthew. Matthew was one of the first that he called. Now, you remember that tax collectors in those days are like tax collectors today. Nobody really likes them, okay? <laughs> but, anyhow, but back then it was even worse because they took taxes for the Romans. Most of the time they were corrupt anyhow. There was a whole, you could say, a fraternity of these guys. They were, like the, 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 they, they were turncoats. They were usually Jews that turned against their own people, took taxes, um, gave them to Caesar, kept a little bit for themselves. And so they were, they were, they were really despised. And, and yet Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew becomes a phenomenal man of God, gives us the gospel of Matthew. And he's at this house full of tax collectors and sinners, uh, you, know, to, you know, to talk about the company. Now, if you think for one second, because a lot of people, just as a sidebar, a lot of people kind of say, oh, Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Ding, ding, justifies me going into the pub and hanging around with all my ungodly friends. I'd say, ding, ding, that's fine. But if they don't listen to you when you preach the gospel, will you overturn the tables and take a whip to them? Ding, ding, you won't, then don't go there. Amen. Get away here now, amen. Jesus commanded the atmosphere, friends. And when he didn't, he judged it. He didn't tolerate sin, friends. He called it out. But he understood he loved people. 
He didn't let the sin blind him from the people. And as Christians, we do with sinners all the time. And we don't let their sin blind us from the love that God has for them. And we have a love for them as well. Not because, not because it comes from us, because it came from him. It, the ability of the Christian is the ability to love the unlovely. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And when we don't draw from that love, we, our abilities to love even those closest to us becomes severely diminished and eventually empty. But thanks be to God, God who is love, who's always pouring into us, will always revive us in those areas of attributes. And so Jesus is here and you know, there's a, there's a lot happening in this house. The, the Pharisees know that this is a new rabbi. There's something strange. He's making some quite outrageous claims of himself. And by the way, he's doing a lot of miracles, which is kind of ex exposing the rest of the religious around him. I mean, the rest are a great talking shop. They can talk about the Torah and the law and how many angels dance in the head of a pin. But this guy is opening blind eyes. You know, he's like, he's sweeping the floor with public opinion. Lame are, are walking, you know, demon-possessed are being set free. And, 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 and they can't quite compute how he could now sit in the house of sinners, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing, friends, that he lays aside his reputation to come and sit with you and me. Because in the eyes of a holy God, it doesn't matter whether you're a drunkard or a blackguard or you just lust for it in your heart. It's the same thing. You all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he lays, besides his reputation, lays it down. And he goes into the house of this tax collector. And there, there's, a, you know, there's a, quite a consternation on it. And they're, they're questioning the disciples, you know, you know why is your, your, your rabbi, if he's such a good man? And of course, he says to them, you know, it's the sick need the doctor. The problem was that the Pharisees didn't see themselves as sick. They were terminally ill, but they didn't see it, friends. They were so full of self-righteousness. They were so full of judgment, they couldn't see it. When Jesus said, the sick, I've called, come for the sick, not the well. They should have said, well, that's me too. That would have been an, an honest Pharisee, wouldn't it? Well, you know, that means you've come for me too, because I'm, I'm sick as well. Do you know, when, you, when, when you're a sinner, you don't have the right to criticize another sinner. You really don't, because you're in the same ship. Amen? You're in the same ship. We're all in the same ship. And I'm here to criticize sinners, friends. I'm here to tell them there's a way out of their sin. You already are condemned in your sin. We know it. Every sinner that knows it, you know you can't stand in the presence of a holy God. Should you die today, where are you going to hide? Oh, sinner man, where are you going to run to? As the song said, where are you you're going to call for the rocks? The rocks, they won't hide you. You know, you, every sinner knows that when you're faced with absolute perfection and beauty, that you feel like, I need to get out of this picture because I feel desperately uncomfortable. And it's amazing that the sinners that are around Jesus felt desperately uncomfortable about their sin, but not uncomfortable about him because he, they knew he loved them. Matthew goes and Jesus said, the sick need a physician. And, you know, and he says something of the heart of God. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He starts to show something about God's heart to these people around him because their view of God became very skewed. The, the Jewish view of God became both skewed in time. Uh, you know, their, their, their view of, of the Messiah became completely wrong. People tell me today, oh, well, we need to understand the Bible like the Jews understand the Bible. Ah, nope, absolutely not. That's why we got a new covenant. Written in Greek, not Hebrew. Amen. <laughs> and Aramaic, and not Hebrew. Maybe fractions of Hebrew. Uh -uh, no, take a step back. By the time Jesus came into the world, they weren't looking for a Messiah like Jesus. They were looking for like a Donald Trump. You know, they were looking for a businessman. 
that could wield power and bring world order and restore prosperity. And so I could plant my field and nobody would rob it and take less taxes from me and uh, I could peaceably have a life and just prosper. I want to tell you, that is so under the sky. Amen. That's so low. And if that's your thinking with your life, I said it, Brooks, Thomas Brooks said it here, almost in the 17th century, he said, you build too low him who builds beneath the sky. And so you build too low today, Christian. And that's where the Jews were. The Jews were building very, very low, friends. They wanted an earthly kingdom, an earthly realm. And I want to tell you, Jesus said, my kingdom is far exceeding that. Because why? Because I'm moving from this world. I move into a body that will be interstellar. I move into a body that will move from a physical realm into a spiritual realm. I'm moving into a different world, friends. And those who come with me will get that new body and inherit a new heaven and a new earth and new places to be and exist. But no, they wanted little old earth, and that's what their eyes were on. If that's you this morning, you may not even be a Jew. Most of you are not. But your eyes are just upon building your own kingdom, feathering your nest, building your house, putting away for your 401k or your, that's an American term, that, that's your pension if you're an American, uh, you know, or you're building an extension, going on a holiday. If that's the sum total, one day it's going to catch up. Your life will have been spent, and you'll say it was worth nothing. It's all gone. And so they had arrived at that. So at this stage of Jesus' ministry, they were so indoctrinated into their works in, in metricing their, their ability before God based upon how well they complied to the law of Moses. And so Jesus comes in and they can't understand it because a holy man wouldn't even rub shoulders with one of them. He wouldn't even touch them. If you go to Israel today and you see some of the Orthodox Jews at Shabbat that have been there, um, you know, if, if, and I do remember one time during Shabbat, they were walking towards uh, the Wailing Wall, and we were there, we were walking, and I happened to brush against one of them, and the look, because I've made him unclean. He's, you, you've made me unclean. You, you go him, <laughs> you Gentile. And, and that was the mentality. They had risen to such a sort of, you could say, an extreme view of their religion, that they were proud and arrogant to the core, and they boast in all things Jewishness. And so, you know, Jesus is there and he's, 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 just, he's just hanging on with the wrong people. They don't get it. They can't see it. They've moved so far from the plan of God. And so, and in the midst of this, there's, there's two disciples. Well, we don't know. There's definitely two. There could be more of disciples of John in this passage of Scripture. And they, they had attached themselves to Jesus' ministry because John the Baptist had been put in prison and uh, John had been beheaded, as we know from the Scriptures. So they're a little bit rudderless. They are, they are pursuers of God. They are young men that are... John was a holiness preacher. He was an old covenant preacher. He was reforming people back to repentance and faith in God and back into the Torah and righteous living through the works of the law in, in so much as he understood it. He was, he was a, 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 a repentance preacher, holiness preacher. And so they're brought up and they're schooled in this, in keeping the law, in fasting, in, in, in the prayers and... Uh, all these metrics, they're, 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 they're schooled this way. John is in prison. I'm probably dead at this time. But, so they begin to, they're, they're, a little bit, they're a little bit at sea. But they remember when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now they come and they gravitate towards Jesus' ministry because he is doing the miracles. But they can't quite understand. They can't quite theologically square the box in this one themselves. John says he's the Lamb of God. He's doing miracles. He's in among uh, the, these sinners, and they're not criticizing, but in their hearts they're having a discussion, as we would all have. You need to put your thinking cap on when you read the scripture. How did they 
assimilate what they saw going on around them. I'm sure they were very troubled. I'm sure they found it difficult. You see, when you talk about the new covenant to people, they find it difficult because they think, well, this is just too easy. Uh, it's nothing to do with me, and it's all about Jesus and God. Well, that makes me uncomfortable. Surely I have something to do here. Surely I have some part to play. Surely I have something to add. You know, when, when God takes it out of your hands, it's a little bit like when my wife drives the car and the steering wheel is out of my hands. I get a small glimpse. It's not that she's a bad driver. It's that we're naturally controlled freaks, and some of us more than others. Amen. We, we, we want to be able to control our lives. We, we think that somehow we bring something to the table here. And so these young disciples, they're a bit flummoxed by this. Now, they don't challenge Jesus on the association. I'm sure that was there in their thinking. They, they, they come from a sort of like, let's talk about something that's not so, you know, not so heated at the moment, you know. Let's not just add fire to the burning of the Pharisees. Let's talk to Jesus upon how come the Pharisees and we fast, but your disciples don't. Now, what they really wanted to say is, why don't you fast either, Jesus, but they weren't brave enough, okay? Because he is a rabbi, but Jesus wasn't fasting the way the, law, the, way, the, way the rabbis were. But they're pointing at his disciples. So why is it that they, they seem to have this liberty? You know, and, and all of a sudden, they seem to be going against everything that they were brought up and instilled as, as proper Jews under the Torah and under the obligation of their old covenant. Why is it that, you know, that, that the Pharisees and we, we, the disciples of John, fast, but your disciples don't? And um, I, I have to think about what, how Jesus, I, I, in my heart, I can't prove this to you because I don't actually have anything indicated in the grammar, but everything in me says that Jesus doesn't scold them for their question. Because the transition from a works-driven understanding into receiving grace it's going to take time because we are so conditioned to be works-driven. And God knows our frame and our makeup, you know, from this, whether you're a, in a Christian or not, or in a or Jew or not, we're all works-driven. We're, we're, we're affirmed on how well we behave. We're affirmed and legitimized on how we interact or how well we do in school or home. Or, and so from the youngest of ages, our affirmation comes from how well we are and how well we behave and, you know, all these sort of what grades you got in school and how did you do in your soccer game or whatever it might be. And so the transition for here must have been very, Jesus was, I believe, very gentle as he is with us. I believe that Jesus didn't go, oh, you idiots, You're all not, do you not see the theology here? Do you not catch what I'm doing? He's, he's gentle with them, you know, and he's trying to bring them on a journey, and that journey is, is ongoing. That journey is today as well, friends, with many who are like the disciples of John, who want the right thing. There's many here this morning, and you want the right thing. There's many watching, you want the right thing, and you're, you're, you're trying, and that's the issue. You're trying. You're trying to do it in the best of your natural thinking. You're trying to establish some sense of meaning and fulfillment in life and some sense of relationship with God, and you're getting nowhere quick. You're frustrated in it, just like these young disciples were. Frustrated. Couldn't quite understand the liberty and, and Jesus begins to speak to them. He says, you know, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's trying to tell them, hold on, I want you to get a picture. I'm the bridegroom and I'm with them. And at this time, this is, there will be a time when they will fast, but not now. There's a time for the Christian to fast. But our fast is a fast that's led by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we do, you know, to somehow extract from God favor. 
through your many fasts, all of a sudden you, you twist the arm of God to be good to you. Did I, did I lose enough weight yet, God? Have I, are my bones protruding enough that you now and twist God's hand up? Not yet, God. Maybe I'll do another week of prayer and fasting, and then you'll have to work. I want to tell you right now, that's not the Christian life. That's, that's Harry Potter. That's not how it works, friends, okay? The Christian life is the faith in someone else's work, not your work. It, the f- Christian life is, is actually emptying yourself of the, the potential that you can somehow move on in your own strength and, and be, you know, somehow justified in receiving the goodness of God because of what you did. That has to be so challenged. That's why I said we are in a constant state of reformation. The whole Bible and, and wrong understanding here is going to lead you into a lot of difficulty. Even though you'd be a wonderful born again Christian with the Holy Spirit in you, loving God, but you're going to be like in and out. You're going to be like, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me because I'm good today, but he doesn't love me now because I wasn't so good. And he loves me again, he loves me not. It's in and out, up and down. Because that's how those young Jewish men that came to Jesus were. They metriced everything about the law. The law was do, 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 do. And if you do these things, you will receive this, 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 and this. So to them, that's the covenant. Covenant is a contract. They have to do the doing here, and God has to do the doing over here. And so when something like this happens to them, it throws them completely out of the water altogether. They're quite, and Jesus talks to them, they will be fasting. Church, let me tell you, I'm not against prayer or fasting. I'm just against mandated ones that we do out of religious unction rather than the sense of conviction that God's called us. That's why we're careful at the church here to call you to fast only when we feel the Lord saying to us, to do it as a body, because when we do it under the leading of the Spirit, it is a very fruitful thing. There's a lot of things happening during those times. When we call for elongated times of prayer, we want to make sure it's God doing it, not Pastor Nick with some sort of religious notion, a good old dose of prayer will sort you out, you know. It's like that nonsense that people would say, well, a good old dose of persecution will will, uh, sanctify the church. I want to tell you, persecution sanctifies nobody. Jesus is the sanctifier of the church, amen. And if he lives in you, you are sanctified you are holy, you are clean. And as you grow in your faith, you begin to see more of the gifts of His Holy Spirit established divinely through His Spirit in your life. And so he begins to share with them. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Now, I think it was, it was Martin Luther said, anytime you see two parallels in your Bible, it's normally correct to, to say is it is two covenants. So, you know, he said, in a typology way, this is a a healthy way to look at your Bible. It's not exclusively right, but it's mostly right. And so he's talking about two. He's talking about, um, he says, nobody takes an old garment and puts a new patch on it. And you see, this is where I wanted to deal with. See, to them, the old covenant was just missing the Messiah. That's their thinking. It's getting worn out. You know, the religion is breaking down some level, but it's correct. The Torah, the law, the keeping this. And all we now need is to get Jesus. He's the missing piece. And we add him to that, and then we have the complete picture. That's what the Jews are waiting for. They want the whole, they want a restoration of a, of a, of a millennial kingdom. They want a, you know, a, 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 a temple again in Jerusalem that was sacrificed bulls and goats and all this sort of nonsense. You know, because they have all that law that they can do, and then we just add Jesus to it. 
And people love that, you know, people, let's be honest, we all love a little bit of sort of religious drama. I don't know why it is we love ceremony and pomp so much, but it gives us a sense of a grandeur about ourselves, you know. It gives us a, a sense of achievement about ourselves. And I want to tell you, friends, the Bible says you have to put self to death. And so a true apprehending of covenant is the, it is the kneeling down before the work of one and one only. And so he said, and it's, so what he's trying to say to me is that, I'm not the missing piece out of your theology. He says, no one takes new wine, talking about the new covenant, and puts it into an old wineskin. Talking about, you know, if I take the essence of my Holy Spirit, my work, and I pour it into the old covenant, I'm going to burst the whole thing open. And the reason why so many Christians, the reason why your life sometimes feels worse since you became a Christian than better is because it's a misappropriation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the missing piece of your life. Jesus, the Bible says in Colossians, Christ, who is your life. Do you understand? He is your life. It's not the piece of your life. He is your life. He's not the missing piece. The donut repairman was wrong when he said, life without Jesus is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. Well, I want to tell you that Jesus is not a missing piece of your heart. He is your heart. He is the new heart. He is the heart of flesh. He is the dynamic um, implant of the Holy Spirit at the new birth. It's not some sort of collectible. You know, I want to thank my manager and I want to thank Hollywood and Jesus for this lovely award. He's not this little cross you put around and a collectible that you bring along as some sort of fashion statement. Oh yeah, me and Jesus go on together. No, that's not Christianity. It's all of Jesus. All of him. He doesn't pour himself into some old vessel that you have mustered up. Oh Jesus, just pour yourself into all my good works and let's offer that to God. And this was revelatory to these men. This was a revelation. You're getting it wrong, fellas. It's a new covenant. It's going to be new wine. Into new wineskins. I'm not taking and indemnifying the past. That's gone. It's a shadow. It's a type. It's finished. It's over with, guys. That's not where the prism. The whole idea of that old covenant was to show you that you could never be holy enough and never keep the law. It was to bring death into you. It was to bring a sense of despair that my human endeavor would never be able to make me to, to be able to with confidence stand before God. But now the new wine is here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The new wine is here. Jesus, in, I think it's Luke 5 and, this, and, and the wedding feast of Cana. You know, they had the, the water into wine and the, the, the master servant he comes and said, you know what, normally they serve the good wine at the beginning, but you serve the, the good wine towards the end. You know, see friends, some people, they, start, they, they give the good wine at the start and this, they give the old wine at the end. See, some people love the old wine. See, the old wine in Jewish terms was wine that had a level of alcohol in it. The new wine in the Jewish times was the fresh squeeze of the grape. It was the most expensive because grapes were very commonplace and when they'd squeeze them, they could create a lot of drinking that the water wasn't great to taste. So everybody loved the day-to-day -day drinking that your children could drink was the fresh squeeze of the grape, which was also known as wine. That was the more expensive one 
because they went to great lengths to preserve that from fermenting. Because the fermentation only went to about 4 to 6%, which became like vinegar plus a bit of alcohol. It wasn't tasting good, but men would drink it and they'd drink it in volumes to get drunk. And so, the new wine. Jesus said, no one takes the new wine, the pureness, the best of the tree, the best of the grape, and pours it into old wineskins. And the reality is, friends, many today, they don't like that premise because they prefer the old wine. Because they like to get drunk on their own abilities and their own talent and their own works. They love to be able to boast and they, people get drunk on what they can do. They, they, they oh, love, look at me here. Look what I can do. What, look what I just did for God. You know, look what I just added. There's a sense of intoxication that comes from religious endeavor. This great sense of euphoria because we walked up Co-Patrick as so many poor souls are doing today in the hopes of impressing God with their faith. Some of them barefooted. Some of them will, will be weeks repairing because they want to somehow do something for God. And the ones that will do it, friends, will get drunk on the success of it. They don't want the new wine. The new wine is the freshness of Christ's work and Christ's work only. The one, that's the, that's, that, that, friends, that wine will keep you healthy and alert. Not not falling around in your own stupor and foolishness. And so Jesus is communicating to these men. He says, you, you must understand that we're not reviving Judaism and your works and the works of the law. No, I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly. I am the fulfillment of every story of the Old Testament right back into the garden. I am the one that is the second Adam. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, who was and who is and who is to come. There's no other before me, neither is there any after me. And I will not be taken and added to your endeavor, whatever it is. And God will not... Let you misappropriate his, the work of his son into your life. Because many Christians live like that. They pull the work of Calvary and they metric along themselves. And before you know it, they've torn their lives asunder. Many broken Christians because, oh, I just didn't read enough today. I didn't pray enough today. Oh, he doesn't love me now. Somehow the favor of God. They're broken. So many broken Christians because they're not hearing what Christ is saying. New wine into a new wine skin. Not the old friends. When you let the Holy Spirit come into your life and, and be led by the Spirit, because the Bible says it's those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. A lot of babies going around there. They're born again. They've asked Christ in. But I'm telling you, friends, they are so not hearing what God is saying, and they're so trying to add to the work of God, to the work of Christ. You know what? It's a, it's, it, there's a curse that comes upon those who tries to add to the work of Christ. My glory I will give to no other. Christian, you cannot touch the glory of God because there's an Ichabod over you when you do it. And the right response for the Christian and the right response for these young men is to start, take a step back and just say, it's all you, Jesus. It's all you. It's your wine. It's your wineskin. It's a new day. It's a new covenant. I have to step back and let you interface with God on my behalf. 
Thanks be to God who says, well, if you come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you Shabbat. I will give you rest. I will give you peace. I will bring you in. I will give you my Holy Spirit. I will take away the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh. He promises that in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. And so this is what's taking place. The transition from the old was going to be as challenging for John's disciples as it is for so many today, friends. The old covenant was fastly fading from its original glory of Mount Sinai when the Lord, uh, when glory filled the face of Moses. That glory began to fastly fade. It was fading away, friends, at the ascension of Christ. The law had a glory. It showed, the imp it showed the perfection of God and the imperfection of men, but it couldn't save you. And I want to tell you, if you think that you can impress God or save yourself or add to Jesus' work by doing certain things and certain endeavors, you are misappropriating the work of Calvary and it's going to lead to a big tear in your life. I remember a woman came to us many years ago with uh, one of our preachers preached a great message at some of our conference and, um, and as a result of that great message, she went up to an altar, this is her testimony, and she said, I'm, I am going to do this because she didn't have a good prayer life because she had just had a little baby. I know it was a boy or girl, but the child wasn't sleeping. And she was finding that she was lying in, getting up at 9 and 10. And later she was tired. The baby was awake all night. She's hearing about all these preachers talking about getting up early in the morning and having that time with God. And if you don't, you're not spiritual sort of thing. So she gets up to an altar for a time of prayer at the end. She says, I make a promise, God. I will get up every morning at 6 o'clock and I'll seek your face. She made a promise to God at an altar, at a summer fire conference, with all the sincerity in her heart to do this. But I'm telling you, that night that baby woke up like it was possessed, kept her awake all night long. She was exhausted, tired, fell asleep. Even didn't, she didn't even hear the alarm. Didn't wait till it was nine o'clock. She'd missed her six o'clock. And the guilt that flowed into her. I'm the worst Christian at this conference. I'm the, I can't even keep my promise to God. I am the worst one. Woe is me. I want to tell you, it's not about you keeping your promise to God. It's about Christ keeping his promise to God. Amen. You have to understand you bring very little to the table. In actual fact, you're shelved, you're angled, you're put over here to one side because you had two and a half thousand years to do it. You couldn't do it. I'm talking about the Jews. And in the Jews are you and me, friends. They're a microcosm for this world. You can't do it. You never could do it. Are you ready to receive him? The new wine and the new wineskin. And that's why, Christian, to walk in a victory, you need to understand that Jesus was so consoling here. He's telling them something very powerful. Jesus could have argued scriptures with most of the legalists, like most legalistic Christians like to argue scriptures. Jesus could have went toe-to-toe -to -toe with these young disciples. He said, well, really, technically speaking, the law of Moses only demanded fasting once a year. But them and their religious endeavor were putting fast upon fast upon fast upon fast. That's how they got so many fasts. It was the law once a year, the law of Moses. But Jesus is not interested in having legalistic arguments about the law. Not interested in that. I'm not interested in going toe-to-toe. -to -toe. If you want to keep the law, more power to you. God bless you. Come back in a couple of years' time when you're broken and you might be ready to receive grace. And so he wasn't interested in that. Jewish tradition, in its pursuit of self-righteousness, added fast upon fast. It's an acid test to the religious man when he is in the presence of the life-giving Christ that he still, in self-belief, seeks his own paltry efforts. Wow. Jesus, in gentleness, asks the question, 
The inappropriate application of Christ will lead to a bigger hole in your life than what you started with. When you devise your religious mixture of works and faith, you end up with a pressure that will always rupture. There are many who will embrace what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, but only believe him to be the missing part. But he's not just the missing part, friends. He's the entire. He's not just the keeper of the law. He's also the author and the fulfiller of the law. Jesus didn't come to patch up your religion or your life. He's bought the new wine and the new wineskin. The old wineskin of religion will always burst in the light of his glory. But those who want to drink of that intoxicating wine of self-effort, friends, they do so at their peril. The terrible arrogance, I believe, of legalism, or the legalists, is not that it's not that even they think that they're good enough, but they think that Christ and his work is not enough. That's the indictment. Because most legalists would say, I'm not good enough, but I'll keep trying. But the sin is to say, no, Christ wasn't enough. That's what legalism does. Sorry, Jesus. You just didn't do enough. I need to add. What I want to tell you, stand before holy God, the Father, and see the brutality of Calvary, the Villa della Rosa, the purging, the scourging before that at the Praetorium, the plucking of your beard, the spitting of your face, the stripping of you naked, the crown of thorns, the nails in your hands and your feet, and the sore piercing your side wasn't enough, Jesus. Sorry, Father, I just need to add something to that. I want to tell you, friends, I wouldn't want to stand before God and say those things, but sometimes our actions betray us. You say, I would never say such a thing. He is our peace, the Bible says, who's broken down the wall of division. The religious rules are gone. And Jesus is the way, friends. Jesus made a way. Get your eye off the disciples and on Christ. That's what he was saying to those young men. Get your eyes off my disciples and look at me. And I'd say to us this morning, get your eyes off yourself. And get your eyes on him. The one who came became part of the human race so as a human being could take upon himself the sin of human beings, the punishment for those sins, and then could rise from the, day, the, the grave and stand as a righteous, righteous intercessor for you and I. And he offers you a free gift of his grace. And that gift is not just the forgiveness of your sins. It's that, and that's awesome that it is the power over sin. As you trust him for that point, he will give you the supernatural for the rest. Do you hear the word supernatural thrown in there? Because it has to be. The excellency of the power has to be of God and not of us. Because if it's of us, Jesus started it, but I finished it. Jesus and me, no. Jesus all the way. Jesus only, Jesus ever. Jesus all and all I know. Spirit and sanctifier and healer. We used to sing it in the hymn years ago. Jesus, 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 all the way. When we worship him, friends, we worship him with good cause. Because it's only him. Only his work. Only his grace. And only his love. If you leave that place, you leave the most precious place and you go back to what you know best, which is all about your effort and behavior and you'll bring condemnation to yourself 
Praise God. That's part three of the new covenant. If Jesus Christ didn't make a covenant with the Father and fulfill all the duties of it, if it's not true, salvation is a myth because you can't do it. The Jews who were better than you couldn't do it. And the sum total of all of us can't do it together. But I got good news. It's called the gospel. He did it all. And he ever lives. And he stands and goes to battle for you every day. And his arms are still open wide. And John 3.16 is as valid today as it was when it was penned. God still loves the world. And he still loves you. And that's the battle to say, well, I trust his love. I trust his sacrifice. I trust his cross. And from there, God says, that's, you do that, and I will send the Holy Spirit. And he will produce only the fruit that the Spirit can produce. And that is love, joy, peace, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. Can you say praise God today? Can you say amazing grace this morning? Can you give him praise today and thank him for his wondrous, wondrous love? That is the gospel. Anything else is religion. And I left that a long time ago, friends. And I hope to God you leave your religion too. Don't cleave to it. It just brings you into bondage. And it brings all the vices of hell with it. Will you stand? We're going to pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Come on. Just a, few, a minute or two left here this morning. Surely we can just say, God, can you, can you just bask for a moment or two in the incredible salvation that he became part of this human world, physically attached, took all that was due to us in his body, purged the sin before the Father, and now offers you his life freely. And all he asks you is to put your confidence in him. And if you do that, now some of you have done it years ago and you've departed left and right because you've misappropriated him. You see him as the savior, but not the entire. He was just a missing piece. No, now, you, now maybe now you're saying, no, he wasn't a missing piece. He was everything and all I ever needed. Now come back to that place. That's coming back to first love. And I pray right now that the Holy Spirit was so augment into your heart, the victory of his cross, that you will leave here. I said it, I prayed it over a brother, skipping and dancing like the calf that was released from the stall. You have to go to a farm one day when you see a little calf born and they start jumping out. They're like, just skip, they jump. It's springtime, they're jumping around. And I pray to God that you'll have a skip and a jump this morning, knowing that you're loved, you're held, you're fought for, you're kept. And that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. And as Patrick said, if it's not looking great now, it's because it's not finished. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for tuning in with us today. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cork Church. Also, make sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions, you can email us info at corkchurch.com or just check out our website. It's www.corkchurch.com. Again, thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time.